People are yearning for information, having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Dr. Mike Roizen is an American anesthesiologist and internist. He's also an award-winning author and the chief wellness officer at the Cleveland Clinic. Roizen has become famous for developing the real age concept and has authored or co-authored at least 10 number one New York Times bestsellers. He's been praised for encouraging Americans to exercise and live healthier lives. He's also spoken at the Achieving Optimal Health Conference and the Wellness Experience at the Gasparilla Inn. Dr. Roizen is a very good friend, and Trisha and I are so thrilled you're here. Dr. Roizen, last time we were with you, the world has completely changed. It was a fun time then, right, in sunny Florida? It was wonderful to have you there. But instead, now we're in a world with coronavirus. How is it all going for you? And what's the latest in terms of the virus from your point of view? Well, I was on a radio show January 15th about this. And I said, if we were lucky, it would go away in the spring as it was one of the coronaviruses and five of the six of them that we had known about at that time that were common in humans had gone away sometime between March 15th and April 15th. So we'd see a rise into that period and then we'd literally get rid of it. And then unfortunately, if like the Spanish flu, it would likely come back between September 15th and October 15th. But that if our science was good, we'd have a treatment for it that would decrease the risk of dying by 80%. Sometime because Fauci had enough money in the NIH budget, thanks to somebody named George Bush, who started this when he read about the 1918-19 Spanish flu. He started an office of preparedness and he had given money to Fauci's group at NIH to do a vaccine. So Fauci let four contracts for vaccine development on January 3rd. And so because of that, we're going to have safety testing I understand from three of the groups by the end of June or at worst, the end of July, and we'll start human trials. And they said to me, how many people will die? And I said, someplace between five and 50,000 in the United States. But when it comes back, it could be like the Spanish flu, more vicious. That's what I thought. I was a little low on the predictions, but in any case, that's exactly what's happening. It looks like it's going away. That's why Louisiana and Florida and California and Texas, which did nothing. I mean, they were stupid in doing nothing, but they got lucky because that part of the United States gets enough energy from the sun early enough to lose it at March 15th. Although I think their governors didn't act responsibly at that time, they got lucky because the sun took care of it. At least that's my view of it. You look at the number of deaths in Texas and Florida and even Louisiana, and they're very low compared to New York and Massachusetts and even the state of Washington. So we got lucky. Now, we have to get lucky two more times. There are now 71 different treatments and 235 controlled trials. One of those, if we get lucky, just one of those treatments could decrease the risk of dying by 80% if you got it and were in the comorbid group, 
we'd be home free. I don't know if we're home free. There's at least an 80% chance we'll get one of those treatments that'll work. From what I understand from the three manufacturers of vaccines and safety trials, we could get one of those by the end of December, maybe end of November, and get really lucky. So the message is we could get really lucky on preventing it for when it comes back. The second component to talk about, if you will, is whether it is social distancing or not, the components we need 100 million plus doses of the vaccine. Again, Fauci and Bill Gates are putting enough money in to gear up the vaccine manufacturing so we'll be okay as soon as they get it done, assuming we get a safe vaccine. So that's a very optimistic message. It's not the one we're hearing on CNN, and it's actually good to hear that. So what we really think is the governors could open up. We're getting a real experiment in Georgia, if you will. Mm -hmm. We're going to find out whether this is right or not, because if he opens up, as he is doing, and the sun has gone to a high enough degree to get to Georgia, which it has, then we shouldn't have a massive influx in Georgia until sometime between September 15th and October 15th, when the virus decides to come back. So this may be a very fortuitous thing, the timing. That's exactly what it was in 1918 and 19. It didn't do much damage the first time around the earth. It was the second time around the earth that it really wiped us out. And that was because of the time of year? People say, was it social distancing? Was it, well, social distancing has a little role to play, clearly, but the bigger role is Mother Nature or Father Nature or whoever, whatever the sun does, whether it's the energy of the sun killing the RNA and the virus or disturbing it enough, or whether it is we spread out, or whether it is the temperature. No one knows really what it is, but it is the closeness of the earth to the sun is what determines when the virus goes away. So when you say goes away, you really mean dormant? We don't know what the heck it does, meaning it goes from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere in spring, summer, and fall. And in fall, winter, and spring, it comes back to the northern hemisphere. Now, when I say that, I mean the incidence of disease, the presence of how many diseases we get. That is the incidence and presence of disease. It's not totally gone, but it is largely gone. Here, it'll be summer. What about on the other side of the world? Well, that's the problem, right? They will get it. The good news is more people on the other side of the world are younger. So if you look at the data, and I told you before we came on, we've been looking at the data from literally 40% of all medical records in the United States we're getting to look at what it looks like is that if you're under the age of 60, even if you have comorbidities, very little risk. Clearly under the age of 50, very little risk. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to get it and not die from it. The chance is something like one in 30,000 if you're under the age of 50. And if you have a comorbidity, it's probably down to one in two or 300. Not zero, but very low. And in all the other people under the age of 50, it looks like it's 0.1%, about the flu. On the other hand, if you're over the age of 60, it goes up very sharply. And above the age of 85, with comorbidity, it may be a 15% killer. 
The good news about many of the countries where there's crowding, et cetera, is they don't have as much obesity as the United States have, and they don't have as many old people as the United States have. That's a good and a bad. So we're going to find out whether it makes difference to physiologic age and how much social distancing matters, et cetera. In the flu that a guy named George Bush really read about very well and started everything so carefully about, it wiped out a huge part of the Indian population. I can't remember whether it was 2 or 3% of the entire population died during that Spanish flu. I think it isn't going to be as bad in the Southern Hemisphere countries now. It appears not to attack younger people as violently as that Spanish flu, which was an influenza A, not in this category of virus as much. What do you think about the idea that we don't have the exact number of people who have been diagnosed with the virus in relation to the amount of people that have died so that most probably more people have it than we know? Yeah, that's where I come to my guess on the 0.1% or less of the under 50 population. On the other hand, we know from the studies in the Seattle nursing home and some other nursing homes in New York, and even the data in China and Japan and Korea and Italy, we're not sure why, whether our immune systems are too weak or whether there's something else going on or whether it is just causing plaque to rupture and us dying of heart attacks or whatever. But it really, attacks the people over the age of 85 in all of the countries that have been looked at pretty severely. Mm -hmm. What it means is if you're 85, you should realize that the only people you should be in contact with are people who've been tested, had the disease by serologic testing, and no longer have it. Two thoughts here. One is in the back of my mind, I keep thinking about the real age. Your whole thing about real age and is 85 really 85? And what goes on in your mind when you're looking at these statistics, when you know age is almost irrelevant given your whole program? I think Deborah Blicks, the CDC nominee mm -hmm. to the president's task force, and Tony Fauci. Well, should Fauci quarantine, essentially, because he's 80? And the answer is his real age is a lot younger. And she's brought that up during the discussions, <laughs> that it may be the actual age of the body, your real age, rather than your calendar age that matters. And what you've done, have you stayed if you will, with a normal weight? Have you exercised? Do you eat relatively well? Do you take enough of a multivitamin? Do you get enough sleep? You know, when you look at vaccination, getting eight hours of sleep for the week beforehand and getting a multivitamin for the week beforehand, that really radically changes the take rate of vaccines, whether we get immunity from the vaccines, from about 30% to 80%. And that's really important in the elderly because in the elderly have a less good response to vaccination in general. That's why we get a bigger dose now. And secondly, all of us over the age of 50 in, in the United States have plaque in our arteries. That is from hypertension or other things. A flu is a very, very inflammatory thing. If you got a sinus infection or a bladder infection, you may have a CRP, our measure of inflammation, of up to 10, where normal is under one. But when you get this coronavirus, is 150 to 200 in the New York studies. 200 times as much as normal. And that breaks off the plaque, which then goes and causes heart attack or strokes or memory loss or kidney disease or 
causes abnormal heartbeats, which is what kills you. So that's why younger people don't have as much plaque. They don't get the heart attacks or stroke. So we don't know the full etiology of this. The other thing is one of the things you might be able to do, I have almost every one of my patients on over the age of 40, who's a male, 50, who's a female, twice daily baby aspirin. It does decrease clotting, but it decreases inflammation greatly. It may be that there's this clotting tendency when you get that big an inflammatory response that you clot from it. And it may be that those baby aspirin are helping some people prevent clots. So it may be that we'll find that out as we analyze the data. And is that because the baby aspirin's not only anti-inflammatory, does it make your blood thinner? It stops the platelets from clotting. That's right. So it does both. I'm dying to find the data, whether it's a real benefit in that, and we'll find that out over the next week or so. The reason I'm saying the next week or so is because we're working with some of the governors to look at when they should open up, and because we're getting access to a large amount of data, and we're going to be able to look in what we call, I'm a science nerd, what we call multivariate analysis at what matters, and some of that will be what matters in terms of drugs. Tell us how your dad is coming through. and I'm not even allowed through. to do that. <laughs> you can't tell us that? Because <laughs> I haven't got their permission to tell you oh, who we're okay. working with. We're working with a group that has access to a lot of data in a de-identified way from a lot of different places. Do you think that maybe this is one of the silver linings that great scientists, science nerds or whatever you call yourself, <laughs> that you guys are all being able to get together and share information in real time? If we don't screw it up, we're getting better at this constantly. A guy named George Bush, and it was continued <laughs> under Obama, started this Office of Emergency Preparedness and started to get vaccine methods that were innovative and new. You know, when you look at Ebola and when you look at the benefits of SARS and MERS, we're getting ready. And now they, unfortunately, those efforts got cut back. But the process is there now. And if we don't screw it up, and that's what I mean, if we continue that effort, we're going to get much better able to prevent what we would call biologic errors or terrorism from hurting us as a society. Why has this been so terrible by a lockdown? And that's what we're really afraid of in Ohio is that the deaths of despair that is drug abuse, suicide, et cetera, from people being out of work and being hardship. We got to be smart. We got to be prepared for the virus coming back. We got to get lucky and get treatments and get a vaccine in a hurry. But if we're smart, we can avoid both the deaths of despair and the deaths from COVID. It takes a really smart group. And then, as you say, we should learn from this. What have we done? Well, the Cleveland Clinic, we've gone from 3,000 telehealth visits a month. And yeah, we do a lot of texting and coaching by email, et cetera. But we've gone from 3,000 physical telehealth visits to now 75,000 in, in one month. 90% of our visits are going to be telehealth in the month of April, I'm sure. And so we'll probably have 150,000 telehealth visits in the month of April. So we're getting much better at certain things. We've taken over a huge building we didn't need it. We're at 40% occupancy. Even our ICUs are at 50% occupancy at the Cleveland Clinic. We set up a hospital 
literally in under a week, they've planned, set up, and gotten supplies for a hospital. We had enough PPE, you know, personal protective equipment for roughly a year. Now we used a lot of that in two months. And some of our restock was captured at the border by the federal government and put into their supply in this crazy thing. We expected all these masks coming in and somebody confiscated them. And we got told they were confiscated for FEMA's warehouse efforts to make sure everybody was supplied. But wow, I think the government's going to get a lot better and we're all going to get a lot better at knowing what we have to build in the United States. One of my friends who lives in Ohio, but he makes the most vacuum cleaner replacement bags for (laughs) Target and he makes 95% of them for Walmart. So he just turned the vacuum cleaner replacement bag set into a N95 mask production. So no he can way. 500,000 masks a day now, like this. You know, how crazy. <laughs> oh, yeah. You can see it. Looks oh, like I'm LA. a duck. We should get a tough. picture. But so they're really clever things that can be done like that. Yeah. Um, that help us to manufacture in the United States and to keep our supplies. So I think it was your question, Dora. I think we're going to have, in fact, an enormous ability to learn from this if we're smart and don't F it up, if you will. So can you tell us what you're going to recommend to the governors? We think you can open up, and we don't know yet from the data, but to anyone under 50, the risk is so low, you could open it up and then you test the other people or the people that they come in contact with so that you're going to be able to say, at least until it comes back, we can open up the economy much broader, much quicker than we thought. Because it's so rare for people under 50, even with a comorbidity to get a serious adverse outcome and our hospitals can handle the increased load if we do, the splurge if we do. Above the age of 50, we think we gotta test and test their contacts to make sure we're able to open it up wider, at least above the age of 60. We'll know whether 50 or 60 is the cutoff in our recommendation (laughs) later today. I don't know it yet. Mm -hmm. It's right there in the computer, but I didn't open it up. Should we take a Should we take a break? (laughs) No, 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 I can't do that. Really? Okay. Jeepers. Okay. So what about this idea that some people are carriers of it? Then this idea that we don't know, like, will that go dormant when the sunny times? So we don't know a lot of the biology of the virus. We're going to learn it. From a standpoint of a scientist, the governors are doing all kinds of variable things, and we're going to learn a lot. You know, if Georgia has an outbreak, we're knowing this is too soon. If Georgia doesn't have an outbreak, we'll know a lot from that too. So we've already learned, for example, I think we've learned, we're not sure that hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine and zithromycin, at least in combination, don't seem to have major protective events. So we'll know maybe something else does. We're going to learn a huge amount over the next four months. By the way, I think this is the major cause for getting well. Because if you're above the age of 60 and make yourself much younger by staying healthy, you're not going to have the risk. So you look at someone who's 75 and doesn't have comorbidities and they get largely to get those choices. What you put in your mouth is your choice. No one's pushing that cookie down our mouths. If you get healthy and do exercise, a little bit of exercise, food choices, stress management, getting sleep, avoiding toxins like tobacco and vaping, you're going to be much younger. 
I'm 70, whatever it is. I got to remember how old I am now. <laughs> My real age is 53. So I think of myself as 53. I want the cutoff to be 60, not 50. <laughs> right, right, right. So is it possible to have the flu and the coronavirus at the same time? Well, they're different viruses. It is possible to be infected by both at the same time. But remember, we have five flu strains that are protected against in the vaccine, and those circulate. So this year, we often have an influenza A and a B that are prominent. Very few of us get both at the same time. I don't know why that is, other than they circulate in different patterns, meaning one is more common in December and January and one more common in February and March. But it is unusual for us to get two upper respiratory infections at once. I don't know whether that's because we're feeling so bad we isolate pretty fast or what. So you're saying that you think we might have a vaccine by the end of this year? I'm hopeful. If it requires two doses, we won't get our second dose till the end of January, unfortunately. But if we're lucky and it's a one-dose vaccine, who knows, maybe we can get it by the end of November and largely avoid this. My real thought is we might get a treatment that decreases the adverse events by 80 to 90%. So you had to scale the virus, COVID-19. How do you categorize it in your mind? It's a unique virus so far, similar to the flu in its effects on those under the age of 50 or 60, but seems to be much more deadly in those over the age of 60 than our current flu strains, and especially those with comorbidity over the age of 60. So if I was going to say it's a flu I don't want to get, <laughs> I suppose yeah. it is no flu do you want. That's why we get vaccinations. We're lucky enough that when 50% of us get inoculated, we have a large degree of herd immunity. I'm hoping 50% of us can get inoculated quickly and get herd immunity. Who knows when we get these population studies with good serology, and we'll do that in the next month or two, we'll know how many of the population have really been infected. Part of the problem now is, you know, you see the data from Santa Clara County that Stanford presented. You don't know how good that serology is. You see the data from LA, and it looks like maybe 30 or 40% of the population's been infected. We really don't know if those serologies are really specific for this coronavirus, because there are at least six other coronaviruses that affect humans. What do you say to the people who are anti-vaccine? You can't fix stupid. You know, what Dr. Oz and I did, Mehmet and I did this way back in 2006 or seven. We interviewed 150 different people on every side of the vaccine movement. The strong anti-vaxxers, the strong pro-vaxxers. And yeah, vaccines aren't safe, but they're much safer than getting the disease. Meaning if you got all the childhood vaccines, you're 40,000 times more likely to avoid illness than you would have been to get it. Deadly illness or very serious illness. 40,000 to one. Wouldn't you place that bet anytime, put a buck down and get 40,000 bucks down or 10 bucks and get 400,000 or 100 bucks and get 4 million? Anyone would do that. 
40,000 to one chance. That's what vaccines are. They aren't perfectly safe. And one of the great things about the anti-vaccine movement is it's made the vaccines much safer. Now, because we said that in the chapter, in the book we wrote, no one will talk to us for a while. The <laughs> pro-vaccine, the people at the end, no one would talk, only the CDC. And we did some public service announcements because the CDC realized it was the right data. We were wondering about this theory about this virus is maybe a precursor, is getting us ready. Is there going to be another virus after this? Do you have any thoughts on that? Or is that just crazy talk? Viruses want to survive, live, and they mutate. So they find a host and they mutate, but they usually mutate actually to more benign things because they want to survive, right? And if they kill their host, they don't get to survive. So they tend to mutate towards benign unless they come from other species and we're unprepared for them. If you think this is a bat virus or pegolin virus, they have different characteristics. And if we get them, they can't survive. The problem is that once you get a RNA strand that has figured out how to survive in humans and go from human to human, well, that strand can mate with another strand that is serious and before that didn't know how to survive in humans. So we're always afraid of bad mutations. And that's why that guy named George Bush was very smart in setting up that pandemic preparedness effort. And in fact, I think it was Rumsfeld who said, you know, we're much more afraid of biologic weapons than physical or nuclear weapons. And so we think there are going to be more viruses over time. And whether it's every five years or every hundred years, we aren't sure, but they're coming They seem to be coming more frequently now, but everything is happening faster. And you think this can help us learn? Unless we screw it up, we should have learned an awful lot from this. What do we have to do to screw it up? Right now, the country has a lot of faith in Fauci and the science community. And as long as they keep funding the Office of Emergency Preparedness, as long as they keep funding the vaccine laboratories, I mean, we've got to thank Bill Gates a lot on this because he funded these independent of NIH to help with the vaccine preparation for Ebola and Zika and some other things. So as long as we keep doing that, To me, one of the worst things that could happen is that the governor in Georgia opens it up. We disregard all science. We forget about it. And somehow in September, October, we're totally unprepared and it kills us. For you during this time, has it been stressful? I've just been laughing. like (laughs) I get sent jokes all the time. And I'm so stressed that Anything that has any humor in it makes You're me dying deliriously happy. happy you know? <laughs> I have this most magnificent wife. She's by far the best stress reliever I could possibly have. Aww. So it makes life much easier for me. So what were you working on before the COVID-19 came along? We think we're in this new role of longevity and COVID-19 will knock it down for a short period of time, just like the Spanish flu did. But you look at life expectancy and it's been going up continuously, even accounting that knockdown and back up. So in 1916, the average life expectancy in the U.S. was around 52. It went down to 44 in 1919, if you were born then. But by 1923, it was at 55 again. We think it'll get knocked down and the same process will happen here. But we're in this period where we're all going to live longer for a long, long time. 
And that's why, as you were saying earlier, it's important that we really start taking care of ourselves in sort of a, maybe in a new way because we will be living longer. So we want to live longer, but we want to live healthier. Thank you, Dr. Roizen. Stay healthy and safe. You too. It's great to see you. Love you guys. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.